hi, welcome to Cannonball, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Cannonball, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host and friend, Dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, Chuck Ryback. How's it going, Chuck? Things are going pretty well. I'm sitting here looking out of the window on what is kind of a nice overcast fall day. We've, we've actually, I think it's coming to an end, but we've had nice weather as of late. Yeah. Uh, it's The last couple of days have been beautiful. I could have just worn a t-shirt yesterday. I mean, with other clothing, but just in terms of just, above the waist, yes. Just, I could have like just worn Winnie, a t-shirt. Winnie the Pooh style? Is that, yeah. uh, I mean, that's the upside of working from home, I suppose. Is... Yeah, Winnie the Pooh dress code. <laughs> Very that's good. amazing. So we have a super guest today um, that I am really to talk, excited to talk about, especially in terms of the Common Cause Conference, which is coming up in, uh, in a few weeks. Um, actually, at the time people listen to this, about one and a half weeks. Wow. So should we get to it? We should. But wait, All right. I didn't ask you how you were. Oh, I'm doing well. Sorry. Thank you. I've been, I, I should tell you, I've been sick for several weeks. It's See, I knew that. I shouldn't ask questions. I know the answers. To. It's okay. I want, I want the listening audience to know just in case I'm no longer with us at the time that this episode comes out. Don't uh, say I that. Think. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that got too dark. Okay. So, Don't say that. I just, I heard you talking with Jenny Young just recently about dark humor. I thought there was a place for it, but maybe I was. Well, I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> a whole nother discussion to be had. Awesome. All right, let's uh, let's now we can get to the guest. Perfect. He is an associate professor of history and humanities, earning his BA, MA, and PhD from SUNY at Buffalo. He researches and teaches about German and European history and culture, American history, science fiction, and jazz. He's a fabulous teacher, having won the UWGB Founders Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2010 and the Board of Regents Teaching Excellence Award in 2014. For the last six years, he's been serving as the associate provost. Uh, but just recently returned to the faculty to get back to teaching and scholarship. He is also giving the keynote address at this year's Common Cause Conference. It's Dr. Cliff Ganyard. How's it going, Cliff? Very well. Nice to see you all. See you both. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. I'm, yeah, I'm really, uh, I am really excited to talk with you about all this. I'm actually also really excited to uh, for your for your Common Cause talk here in a few weeks. Um, there's a, there's a billion places to start, but I actually wanted to start at the, uh, at the, I guess, the beginning. How did you become a historian? Uh, when did you know that's what you wanted to do? That sort of thing. Wow. Okay. So um, that's, I don't know if it's an interesting story. It could be a long story, but I'll keep it short. So uh, as I think Chuck knows, my father was an historian. Uh, he taught American history at SUNY Buffalo, where, uh, coincidentally enough, both Chuck and I went as undergraduates. Um, and so uh, for a long part of my life, the last thing I wanted to do was be a historian, um, which makes sense, right? You want to be different from your father. So mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time exploring other options. Uh, and I fell in love with science fiction as a teenager. Uh, <clears throat> I was reading Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. And so I decided I was going to be a writer. And uh, Heinlein and Asimov were both scientists. Uh, Heinlein had a degree in mechanical engineering. And Asimov, of course, was a biochemist, taught at Boston College and all kinds of cool stuff. So I determined to go into the sciences. And I went to SUNY Buffalo intending to major in physics. 
that lasted half a semester. Uh, I got a C minus in calculus and I had to drop physics. And so um, I spent another year kind of exploring other options um, and it came down to English and history. And I took, took a couple of great courses, one with Orville Mur Murphy on Western civilization um, and another with Charles Stinger on the Reformation. And that's really when I realized that um, despite my best efforts to avoid destiny and fate, mm -hmm. uh, I was going to have to study history. And so I became a history major. Um, I spent the summer after my sophomore year in Germany, um, learning German and learning about the culture. Um, thanks to that was thanks to the Reformation course I took with Professor Stinger. Um, and the rest, as they say, is is history. I went on to major in history. And ultimately, I decided that uh, I wanted to be a professor. Um, so I went on to graduate school and earned my master's degree and my Ph.D. Wait, so did you two know each other or were, did your time at SUNY overlap at all or no? Cliff and I were actually, I believe, in at least one class together, but did not know each other until we were in Green Bay. Yeah, that's really? right. Yeah, so our time overlapped, I think, almost perfectly. I can't yeah. remember when you graduated, Chuck, but it was essentially the same time. Um, and Chuck was not only an English major, but also a history major. I was. And so we, we almost certainly were in classes together, didn't know each other. Yep. I was there from 87 to like, nine, you know, 87 or 88, it would have been by the time it started, but to 91, 92. Yeah, yeah, that's when I was there too, 87 and 91. Yeah. I, you know, I just never put that together. I, I knew you both went to the, went there, but I didn't think about the fact that you both went there. Um, and yeah. so that is- In the uh, same spaces, but didn't know each other. It's very science fiction-y, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that is very cool. And I should tell you, Cliff, that you and I have a very similar start to our college career. I also went to Lawrence to study physics. I also- uh, was undone by calculus. And, um, <laughs> and uh, in my case, it wasn't a physics class. It was the history of planetary astronomy, which uh, I did not nice. do terribly well uh, in. So, um, well, that is actually fascinating. So uh, kind of a follow-up question, because I'm always curious with historians, how, hmm. how you find your passion within such a broad discipline. Um, you know, with your, and it sounds like some of it came down to a, 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 a study abroad trip. Although I'm curious, did the, did you want to go there because you knew you were interested in studying that particular area or uh, did you discover your love for it while you were there or maybe some combination of both? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so that was my last rebellion against my father's profession. He taught <laughs> colonial American history. So I resisted American history for as long as I could, which I now see as a mistake. And I can talk about that later if you want. Mm -hmm. So I, I did land in European history as kind of, you know, I need to do something different. But really, um, those two classes I mentioned, uh, Orville Murphy taught French Revolution, and Charlie Stinger was a leading scholar of the Italian Renaissance, uh, and uh, taught this course on the Reformation. Uh, and that, that course, I think, is one of the things that really determined that I wanted to study German history. It was a fascinating course, um, and Stinger was this really laid-back, humane kind of person. Um, but my, my family roots are also in, in Germany, and so I'd been taking German 
for a long time. I, I started in high school uh, and I took it all throughout my time at SUNY Buffalo as an undergraduate. I had a couple of um, fantastic German instructors, uh, Michael Metzger, who I had in a freshman seminar and then took his classes throughout. So, you know, I was kind of predisposed to looking at Europe and Germany before I took those history classes. And they, they kind of came together uh, in that moment, in that course. Um, and I decided I wanted to explore Germany a little bit further, hence the summer, summer abroad the following year. And so, Cliff, now that you've, I mean, you've sort of tried to, I mean, I'm just thinking about process here. You also like did the same, at least for a little while with Japanese, right? Where you were, where you went to Japan and immersed yourself for a while. And I want to say had a narrow escape from a disaster in terms of timing. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. It's been a decade now since that happened, but yeah. yeah. Um, so there's, again, there's some logic there, right? I've always been interested in Japan. Uh, again, this goes back to, I think, you know, my high school interest in science fiction and fantasy, you know, samurai and ninja and all that kind of milieu. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, studying Nazi Germany in particular, which became my, my focus in grad school for, um, for my PhD, um, there's a logical connection there, right? that uh, Japanese history has these interesting parallels with modern Germany uh, in that they're founded as modern states at virtually the same time, right? So Japan goes through the Meiji Reformation in the 1860s, gets rid of its, uh, you know, the shogun and reestablishes the emperor and becomes this modern state, marks on industrialization, all this stuff. And Germany is doing the same thing, right? So under Bismarck, uh, and German unification is completed in 1871. This new powerful state, then a, a kingdom, an Im imperial uh, state, also embarks on industrialization. And they go through this kind of weirdly similar path where by the 1830s, um, you know, imperial Japan um, has become this authoritarian militaristic state. I would describe it as fascistic, although other scholars do not. And of course, Germany ends up with, with Hitler. And so I was fascinated by, you know, is this a real thing? Is this, you know, is there something here? Or is it just coincidence that these two, these two countries ended up in this kind of similar space uh, at the, the exact same moment? And so, yeah, Chuck, I spent quite a while trying to learn Japanese. Um, I was not successful in that, to be honest. Um, it doesn't seem like there's any shame in that. Yeah, no, it's one of the most difficult languages to learn, and trying to do do it in your forties is not not conducive. Right? <laughs> um, but I learned an incredible amount. I took a bunch of courses down at, at Lawrence University, um, and I spent summers at Beloit in their language program, um, and then I spent a year uh, in in Japan studying language culture, traveling as much as I could, learning as much about the history as I could. Um, and that paid off. You know, I, I spent a lot of years teaching Japanese and Asian history here uh, and thinking very deeply uh, about some of that. Um, but the, the catastrophe, the disaster you mentioned, Chuck, yeah. So I was in Japan uh, in March of 2011 when the Fukushima disaster happened. Um, the tidal wave and the earthquake and the meltdown 
yeah. uh, and so forth. It happened about two weeks before I was scheduled to leave. Um, I was never really in any danger. Um, my father-in-law freaked out and called me and said, you've got to get out. You've got to, li- you've got to leave. And Chuck, you'll appreciate this. I, mm-hmm. I said to him, dad, I grew up closer to three mile Island than I am to Fukushima right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he kind of stopped and thought, oh, well, okay. <laughs> you know, and, and for you and me, no one else will get this reference, but Love Canal was almost literally yeah. around the corner. From yeah. Um, I mean, but it was incredible. a, it was a, it was a frightening and also fascinating time to watch a country react to a disaster like that. In all fairness, Cliff, Japan just looks small on the map, so people wouldn't know that you were that far away. Yeah. Well, it is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. So <laughs> if you look at Japan, the length of Japan is actually the entire west coast of the United States. It's that long. And so it really is a long way away. Well, we're just glad that you were safe, Cliff. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I'm curious uh, about something that, you know, it seems to me that for the last, well, I would say 10, 15 years, but frankly, maybe longer, America's really been like, kind of preoccupied with World War II. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of movies uh, in particular. And it seems to be that and, and it's interesting because I grew up at a time where America was really it felt like Hollywood was really preoccupied with Vietnam, but in a very different way. Right. And we had lots of movies, but they were all sort of in the nature of platoon, um, you know, about the horrors of war, where it seems like the, the, the films that have come out about World War II are really about the glorification of, of that time. What is your sense for why that is? Um, well, I guess first, is that true? Um, do you see it that way? And then what is your sense for for why? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I would complicate it a little bit. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and there is a lot of that uh, as well. Um, but I, I could also point to some other films that kind of contradict that. So I think of something like The Thin, uh, Thin Red Line, uh, which came out, I think, in the early 90s, um, if I recall correctly. So I think this is about the time you're talking about. Um, and the Thin Red Line, which was based on a, a book, um, depicted the, the war in the Pacific very negatively. Right? I mean, it tried to be realistic in some ways. And it got a great deal of criticism. I remember veterans uh, and others, you know, writing op-ed pieces saying, our soldiers would never behave like this. This is complete trash and so forth. Um, and really, it was probably closer to the truth. Um, and there are a bunch of other films that, that came out, I think, you know, in the 1990s that would kind of complicate that a little bit, too. Not entirely, but a little bit. Right. So um, Schindler's List is in that same period. Um, Saving Private Ryan. Right. Uh, and Saving Private Ryan, you're, you're right. I mean, there is this kind of triumphant narrative. Right. We're going to go rescue the, the last brother and save him. Um, but the film is, is you know, at the time it was described as the most realistic war film. A lot of veterans said, yes, that's what D-Day felt like. Um, and, you know, everybody dies <laughs> at the right, end. Right. And so, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, it's really striking, I think, to, to think about some of that in that it, it does kind of reiterate that triumphalist narrative to some extent, but it did so in a very realistic a realistic way. Um, and, and I think a lot of that is carried actually by Tom Hanks. Uh, and it's his ability as an actor, I think, to convey some of that ambiguity 
you know, and I thought it captured very well that Hanks captured very well, you know, here's the, his character is just an ordinary guy who suddenly finds himself as a captain having to lead this ridiculous um, rescue mission. And he, he says that throughout, he's very frustrated uh, with the war and with his role. And, um, but he does it because it's what he has to do, right? Um, you know, so I, I think it's a little bit more complicated uh, than, than that, at least in film. Um, but there is this kind of tendency, I think, in American culture uh, to look back at, at uh, the Second World War as, as, quote unquote, the good war, right? And the greatest generation, I borrow from Brokaw. Um, these are, and there's some truth in both of those narratives, right? Few people would argue that the outcome of the Second World War um, wasn't good, right? That Nazi Germany was defeated is definitely a good thing. And certainly the, the sacrifices, sacrifices made by that generation are important. But the story is always more complicated than that, right? Uh, you know, there's been some scholarship that's been done now in the Second World War. And while there certainly were soldiers who fought that war to defeat Nazism, um, whole groups of people, there was a recent uh, exhibit about the, the Ritchie boys, um, who were uh, Jewish refugees uh, from Germany who joined the army to go fight Hitler. I mean, so there's clear, you know, clear that there are, are soldiers, there are people who are doing this deliberately um, to fight against Nazism. But there's also a fair amount of scholarship that demonstrates your average American soldier didn't really understand what the war was about, right? And, um, that they, they went to war because they'd been called by their country and they were patriots and were going to serve their country. And these are all positive values. But this idea that, you know, they went to, to defeat Hitler or to defeat Nazism or to end the Holocaust it is exaggerated uh, quite a bit. Um, and indeed, the, the U.S. government downplayed the Holocaust because they were afraid of what the public outcry would, would be. Right, that they would that um, you know the public would demand that we bomb um, the concentration camps, for example, or something like that, and that that would divert you know the the kind of material strategy that was necessary to actually win the war. Um, so it's really a fascinating question to look at, and I think there's a lot of room for for more scholarship here. But the more that we learn about individuals and individual action, right, it's not so clear cut. It's not that, uh, oh, yeah, we all joined up, you know, and, and fought Hitler and, and defeated Hitler and, and, and so forth. In fact, most Americans wanted nothing to do with the Second World War until Pearl Harbor. Um, you know, Cliff, what, one comment just about the films you mentioned, definitely a big difference between the visions of Terrence Malick and Steven Spielberg, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's hard to think of two directors. And I, I love Terrence Malick, so big Terrence Malick fan here. I saw yeah. the thin red line in the theater when it came out on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> so there was just me and one other person in the theater. We're the only two people there. And I just remember being completely overwhelmed with the just beauty and the power of that film. And just, yeah, it was Terrence Malick is something else. Like you, if you give Spielberg and 
Malik an opportunity to make a war movie. There's no doubt one is going to be like a really long poem with images and the other one's going to be a triumphant story. So <laughs> yeah. well, The Thin Red Line is a good example. I, I'm, I hadn't thought of that movie in a while, so I'm glad you, you mentioned it. You know, I, I've heard in this, I've heard people describe at least the perception of World War II is sort of America's, and I think this is naive, but America's only uncomplicated war. And that feels really naive to me in the sense that all war is complicated. Maybe it, maybe it is, maybe the outcome, as you said, in, when it comes to Germany is what we wanted, that that part wasn't complicated. But, but the, the process itself is, is always uh, messy. And as you point out, people not knowing what they, they um, why they were fighting, um, people not wanting anything to do with it for a long period of time. But it also feels like in retrospect, it's an easier war to glamorize because, mm -hmm. because it feels simple to people. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, because the outcome is so good, you know, because it seems so clear cut, it's easy to, to read back into that, right? that there is a particular narrative that's obvious, right? We fought the war and won it and look, we saved the world. And, um, other wars are messier, right? Uh, the Civil War actually should have a similar narrative and, and sometimes does. Um, but one of the things we've been exploring in the Learning from History series that we're doing this semester, you know, is this idea of the, the so-called lost cause from the Civil War, that the, there's this particular narrative that has been promoted by, um, you know, particular interests to rewrite the story of the Civil War, right, to make it look like the South is actually the victim uh, of the Civil War instead of the instigator of the Civil War. You know, parts of that narrative are, um, you know, well, the war wasn't really about slavery, it was about states' rights. Um, and as I always like to comment when I hear about that, yes, it was about states' rights, the state right to own slaves. Um, and this is, you know, embedded in all of the documents. If you look at South Carolina's declaration of, you know, secession, it says we're withdrawing because we want to protect slavery. Um, but that narrative is really powerful and it still exists today. Um, and so, you know, I see that often. Um, the history is a very contentious and very important field. Um, because it defines who we are today. And so there's a lot at stake in how we understand uh, history. Uh, and that lost cause narrative has been so powerful. I mean, to some extent, it's the narrative that I learned in high school. Um, maybe not, I went to, to high school in the North, so it wouldn't have been the same as going to school in the South. But nevertheless, you know, this idea that Ulysses S. Grant, for example, was a terrible president, he was a drunkard, uh, and he was plagued by scandal. You know, there's some truth to all of that, but more recent interpretations of Grant have painted him as the savior of the Union twice. You know, he saved it as general of the Union forces and then as president for eight years. Um, you know, he's the one who um, founded the, the Department of Justice, for example, to enforce the 15th Amendment uh, and voting rights. So there's a lot going on. And you mentioned Vietnam too, Ryan. So you'll, pro you'll probably remember this, but uh, during the Reagan years, you know, there was this huge narrative about Vietnam that we didn't lose the Vietnam War. You know, that it, our, again, our soldiers are heroes and, you know, all of this kind of, uh, of, of element to it. Um, 
and then you get movies like Platoon in the mid 80s. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. But on the flip side of that, you've also got Rambo, right? And True. so you have the, the, you know, you have the same kind of tension, uh, tension there. And of course, more recent historical scholarship on Vietnam is, is demonstrated. But again, it's much more complicated uh, than those simple narratives of, of victory and, and defeat. Yeah. So Cliff, here's a question for you. So, you know, I'm wondering how, like, the nature of warfare and how we engaged in it in the times that you're talking about. As those methods change, I wonder how the methods of historical research change, you know? So like for World War II and the Civil War, those are easy conflicts to dramatize. Whereas I would say the, the long war that we, I don't know, maybe is over, maybe not, is really hard to dramatize. I mean, they're, I mean, I think a lot of people would be shocked to know that just under 5,000 people total casualties in Afghanistan and Iraq for U.S. soldiers, like how small that is compared to all of the other conflicts, some which occurred just within a single calendar year. Like I think the Mexican-American War had more total casualties in 12 months than 20 years of Iraq and Afghanistan. And it feels hard to dramatize, you know, but if like, if you're a historian, you're not, you know, you're maybe in the past, you would go and do research on battles and equipment and casualties. And, but now it feels different. Like, it, do historians have a different task ahead of them when talking about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and whatever is to come? Yeah, that's a fascinating question, Chuck. Actually, I think you've got two questions there. Um, Maybe three or four. <laughs> um, I would say that the task is, is always evolving and always changing, right? So one of the things in terms of how warfare has changed, um, you know, one of the, I think there are a lot of things that have changed, but one of the, the key things that has changed is technology, right? Warfare has become industrialized. Uh, and that started even back with Napoleon. Um, but, uh you know, throughout the Civil War, people often forget that the Civil War is the first place where submarines are used, trench warfare, machine guns, concentration camps, you know, all of these things are used in, in the, the Civil War. Um, but then uh, the First World War is an overwhelmingly industrialized war. The Second War, Second World War is even more so, right? And technology has increasingly distanced us from our enemies. Um, and so if you think about, you know, Napoleon, Napoleonic Wars, you could still see the person you were shooting at, right? And then as the Civil War and especially the First World War happened, you're further and further distanced from that. And in the Second War, it, it's all about aerial conflict, really, right? Dropping bombs. And same if you think about Vietnam, there's a lot of similarities, Car carpet bomb bombing and Operation Rolling Thunder. Uh, and uh, Agent Orange. Uh, and so by the time we get to Iraq and Afghanistan, and we're talking about drone strikes that are being controlled in the United States, I mean, the soldiers are not even there. They're not even in country in the same number. And so that's undoubtedly have had an impact on um, how conflict is waged uh, and kind of, you know, how we fight those wars. In fact, General Milley, I think, at one point in this past year, commented that 
you know, we could probably continue the war in Afghanistan for a fairly small number of, of people, 2,000, 3,000 soldiers would be enough because of all the technology that we have. And of course, President Biden decided not to do that for what I think are good reasons, continuing impact on family and so forth. But that's a good transition, I think. So one of the things that's really happened with military history over the last 40 years is that it really has shifted. Um, and it used to be about diplomacy and battles and generals, you know, kind of traditional bang, bang history, as it used to be called, right? And since about the mid-70s, um, historians have really refocused how we look at um, military history. Um, you still have to talk about battles, origins, and consequences, but there's much more interest in the experience of war now. Um, and so, uh, oh, I've forgotten the author's name now, but, you know, the First World War in Modern Memory, um, Chuck, which you probably know, a famous book from the from the 1970s, looked at kind of the literary output of the First World War to think about what was the experience of soldiers. Um, and that has really continued. And so a lot of the history of warfare now is about social history, cultural history, the experience of individuals or groups of people uh, in conflict. And I think that, that that's going to be the way to really think about Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, we're going to have to look at why they started, why they continued, right? What were the political decisions? What were the diplomatic decisions that were made um, that led to the various events of the war? But I think the longer lasting impact of that is going to be what was the experience of the soldiers in the war? What was the experience of the Iraqi people, of the Afghani people? Um, and some of this has already come out after the withdrawal in August, for example. I read a great article, I think it was in the New York Times, um, that pointed out that a lot of what we saw here in the United States was really just the war in Kabul, right, in the capital of Afghanistan. And that if you went out into the countryside, the people of Afghanistan had a very different experience of what war had been like. And so Kabul, under American influence, had become very cosmopolitan, very modern, uh, you know, we hear all of this stuff about how women really advanced, and they did, right? They had all kinds of new opportunities. But this journalist who had spent a lot of time in Afghanistan pointed out that in the countryside, not that much had changed. And most of the actual conflict had happened in the countryside. And so they actually often saw the withdrawal of Americans as a very good thing, right? That the war was coming to an end. Now, conflict between the Taliban and ISIS might change that, right? But at that moment, um, you know, that blind spot that we had of just looking at Kabul and not seeing the bigger country and the experience of the people, I think that's going to be really what is going to be interesting, at least in my opinion, is going to be what's you interesting. Know, I'm sort of fascinated how, when I think about war, how we've moved to a place where, and I'm going to use place ironically there, where places have largely been erased, you know, like there, I think about Lexington, Concord, Gettysburg, you know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the Battle of the Bulge. And it, I've just, how few people could name places of conflict in Afghanistan or Iraq. I mean, maybe somebody knows Fallujah and you could say that, um, but just that it, these, 
they seem placeless almost other than the boundary of a country. Whereas in the past, like even the way we were taught history, you know, to go, my sister lives in Boston. So to go to Lexington and Concord, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. Pearl Harbor, right? Like we can, we can name these things, but the contemporary moment seems placeless in a way that maybe matches the technology and that's evolving in the world. Like we used to study the, the race to the atomic bomb and fat man and little boy. That's a really great movie. Um, but now it's like, what the, we'd be studying the microchip or something. That's the, the technology that surpasses the atom bomb or something. I just rambling on here. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I agree, Chuck. And, and you, you can push that back a little bit further. I would argue the same was true of the Vietnam War as well. And, you know, I think few of us could name actual battles during, during the Vietnam War All I know, uh, the in the way that you just suggested. Right? Yeah. I mean, we can probably point to the Tet Offensive, but the Tet Offensive itself was placeless in the sense that it was a simultaneous attack on many places. So, yeah, I agree point. with Well, as we finish up, and this has been a fabulous conversation, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, Common Cause talk uh, coming up in a few weeks here. You're going to be talking about conspiracy theories, which I know has been a a thing you've been interested in broader than just the the modern moment where there seem to be so many. Can you tell us a little bit, give people a teaser for the talk? Yeah, sure. So um, this is a recent interest of mine, but in some ways it goes back all the way to grad school, right? So if we think about conspiracy theories, we often talk about JFK um, or Watergate uh, or 9-11. These are you know, recent American um, examples of, of events and conspiracy theories that grew up around them, or in the case of Watergate, an actual conspiracy, right? But as a, as a German historian, as somebody who has focused on Weimar and Nazi Germany, conspiracy theory is part and parcel of what I study, right? And so there's kind of this natural connection uh, uh, between what's happening now. You know, people are talking now about, oh, this is an age of conspiracies. This is an age of conspiracy theory. What's happened to us? Why are we so susceptible? Why are we so gullible for these kinds of things? And from an historical perspective, you know, I would argue that in that sense, there's actually not much. Um, that if you look back at the 1920s and 1930s, there are conspiracy theories are as prevalent um, and had an incredible impact on history as well. Or people have argued that I would complicate that too. And so, uh, for example, there's this recent book by Richard Evans uh, called The Hitler Conspiracies, where he examines these, these fascinating theories, including uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion which is one of the most notorious um, documents about a Jewish world conspiracy, or the Reichstag fire uh, in 1933, for example, and who caused that? Was it a Nazi conspiracy? Um, or, you know, one of the most prevalent ones that survived is, you know, Hitler's escape from the bunker. Um, he didn't escape, by the way. But nevertheless, this is a, this is a you know, an incredible, um, incredibly influential idea in in modern American culture that somehow Hitler escaped, that he's still alive, he's living in Argentina, and all this this crazy stuff that's going on. So what I'm interested in is, is, you know, what are these conspiracy theories? How do they operate? Why do people believe in them? 
but also more broadly, you know, is our modern moment different? Is it really defined by conspiracy or can we see it in a broader context as something about the modern world um, or indeed just about history in, in general? So that's what I'm going to talk about on the 29th a little bit, um, you know, is what is conspiracy theory and how does it kind of fit into um, his modern history? And I really can't wait for it. It's going to be a, an incredible talk. You can check that talk out uh, on November 29th at 6.30 p.m. at Fort Howard Hall of the Widener Center for the Performing Arts. Um, and you can register for it by going to uwgb.edu slash common cause, that's C-A-H-S-S. Uh, you can check out that as well as Cliff's got other uh, talks happening at uh, Common Cause as well. It's going to be a really great day. So there's lots to see there and all of it is free and open to the public. So be sure to check that out. Um, Cliff, if people want to, in the meantime, if people want to know more about you, you're on Twitter. What is your handle on Twitter for, for people? Uh, it's just, uh, what is my handle on Twitter? I think <laughs> it's just January at Twitter. I don't nice. even know. Oh, okay. and yeah, I'm on Facebook and, and on Twitter both. If you search for Clifton Ganyard, it should pop up pretty quickly. Um, so you can follow me uh, there if you'd like. Yeah. Perfect. And we are going to be back, uh, I think, in a week with more from Cliff Ganyard talking about the works that have inspired him. Uh, you can catch me in all of the places. I'm at Anger Professor. And you can also follow the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at UWGB Cause. That's UWGB C-A-H-S-S. -S. It's on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, and like I said, you can learn more about the Common Cause Conference uh, by checking out uwgb.edu slash common dash C-A-H-S-S. Cannonball is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. This week's episode was engineered by Sarah Miller. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlees, and our music was created by our very own Chuck Ryback. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Cliff Ganyard. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Chuck Ryback. Thanks for listening.